All right, well, thank you for being here tonight. Um, for those of you who are visiting with us to hear Tori, Carpenter's Way is very, very mission-minded. We care deeply uh, about people knowing Jesus for two reasons. Number one reason is, is because it's our task to take as many people with us as we can. The second reason is, is the Scripture tells us that as soon as every tongue and nation is heard, we get to go home. So uh, we have a twofold. One is selfish. We want to get, we want to get it out in every language. And uh, it was uh, a few years ago that Tori was serving the Lord as a teenager and a high school graduate working in uh, orphanages in Uganda. And I uh, felt the call to missions, and the Lord opened the door for her to study at Moody for a year and then go uh, on a Moody study program for two years with Africa Inland Mission, which is a phenomenal mission organization with a great history. And uh, she spent, oh, was it two years or over? It felt like it was over, two and a half years. And uh, some of us got to see her in action, which was quite amazing. Um, one of the reasons you've got to go on an international mission trip is to see what God does in the hearts of people fully surrendered. And I don't mean like all of a sudden she becomes super smart. She just becomes strong. Um, I remember sitting with her one night and treating her like a father, and she looked at me and said, this is my country. So she's a little bit rebellious, but uh, it, it was incredible to watch her with the people there. This is a French colony no longer, but it's very French, uh, different than India or anywhere else. And the people there kind of adopted her. Uh, they, they saw her as one of their own, which was quite amazing when you hadn't been there a year yet and uh, uh, learn the language and everything. You're going to hear about this tonight. She's home now, and are you going to share with them what's next in your life? A little bit? Just Okay. What we, okay. So uh, I'm going to pray, and uh, then we're all going to find out what, what you're going to share, because obviously you're going to make it up as you go along, right? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Father, we thank you for uh, the privilege of being your kids in this world, and I, I thank you for Tori. I thank you for the privilege to financially part, part, uh, partner with her, uh, to spiritually partner with her, to go see her and to see... Um, what you'll do through a woman whose heart completely belongs to you. And um, Lord, she's just a girl empowered by the Holy Spirit, um, and that is a powerful force. So um, we thank you. We thank you for the heart of this church. We thank you for the heart of Tori, and we pray that tonight we would be blessed through her heart. And uh, I pray that this church would continue to be an encouragement to her, whatever it is you have for her in the future. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'm going to do something that I didn't originally plan on doing. Um, I'm going to read through an article that I wrote. Can everybody hear me? I don't know where to hold this. Um, I wrote this article for my missions organization, African Inland Mission, while I was in Kenya after I had some time to um, just think and process about my time on Nusi Bay. Uh, and this article goes through kind of where we were at day one to where we were when we left. Um, my team, the soccer level, the people that we were with. Um, so it just kind of goes through that. And as I get to places uh, throughout the article, I might stop and just kind of go on a little rabbit trail um, every once in a while through that. Um, and just so you know, that picture up there is probably one of my favorite pictures. It's just going to stay up there for a while. And at the end, we're going to go through some pictures. Um, I'm going to talk about what it means for me personally to come home back to Texas. Uh, I'd like for people to ask questions at the end if anybody has any questions. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about what I'm going to do next. <coughs> I'll go ahead and apologize for all the times I'm going to cough. Mm -hmm. So off the northwest coast of Madagascar lies a small island that one might pass over on a map. Nusi Bay is a beautiful and messy place. It is home to, the tri to a tribe known as the Sakalava, and until recently, a team of nine missionaries just trying to survive. 
When I stepped off the plane in April 2013, I was overwhelmed and in awe of this picturesque island. However, as the realities of everyday life set in, I began to see the messiness and darkness that flooded this land. The Sakalava are known as an animistic culture, and they are bound by fear to their long-deceased ancestors. Holding ceremonies to ask the spirits of the deceased to inhabit their bodies is not uncommon. Leaving offerings of rum, money, or clothing at sacred sites to ask for favor or blessings is typical. <clears throat> Following the many taboos, like staying home from the rice fields on certain days, for fear of re repercussions from the ancestors keeps the Sokolapa bound. The spiritual darkness consumes the island, and the weight of it is carried on the backs of the Sokolapa. Bound by fear and bound by the unknown. My Timo team and I came to this island like small children, wide-eyed and a little lost, not knowing the language or culture. We had to rely heavily on our neighbors and newfound friends to help us with the day-to-day -day tasks. Day-to-day -day tasks, I'm talking like, I didn't even know how to draw water out of a well with a bucket properly, according to the Sakalava. They had to walk us through how to live, just how to live, how to survive, how to feed ourselves, how to wash dishes properly in running in, in a stream that was used for getting their cows watered, giving water to them, children using the bathroom, women doing laundry, and us washing our dishes. So you can just imagine how many things my body has been through and why I was sick all the time. <coughs> These were frustrating times for me and my Texan independence on which I pride myself. We serve a gracious God who gently helped me through my issues of pride and self-serving independence, but he also allowed me to fall face first in the mud, literally and figuratively. That goes to our rainy season. It's just an absolute mess. Only then did I begin to understand the necessity of putting aside my independence so that relationships could flourish. Every team member was forming, a rela was forming relationships throughout each of our villages. It wasn't until near the end of my term that I realized from the beginning how God so purposefully used those specific friendships and relationships to further his kingdom. He had intricately woven together people from different walks of life, cultures, ages, genders, and races for his glory. <clears throat> the first week on the island, we lived with local families. This is what's called homestay. I think when I was home for Jessica's wedding, however many Aprils ago that was, um, I talked maybe a little bit about homestay. Where we lived with a local family for a week, not knowing any language other than greetings, which you do that once a day <laughs> when you wake up in the morning. Um, and there's not much to talk about after that because you can't. Um, but they taught us through actions. Um, they taught us how to cook, how to clean, um, where to go get water, what's safe to eat. Um, and that week was one of the most challenging weeks of my entire life, but where I grew the absolute most. Um, I only learned maybe a couple more words that week in the local language. Um, but those words stuck with me for the entire time that I was there, and they were the most important to me. And the family that housed me um, would call to check on me. They were on a different island, and they would call to check on me, and sometimes they would just show up on my island just to make sure that I was okay and that I was still doing the things that they taught me how to do. And when they saw that I wasn't, they would correct me, and we would go from there. Um, no, no interpreters. Um, we all, as a team, we learned the local language just by sitting with people. Um, it's not the official language of Madagascar is a written language, but the tribal dialects are not. Um, and so we just had to learn through listening and conversation and acting out things, which is really embarrassing. Um, 
it was a crash course, this is about the homestay, it was a crash course in the daily lives of the Sokolava. One of our team families, who also come from Texas, Brian and Reby McReynolds, <clears throat> and their three kids, stayed with a well-known local family in the main fishing village of Mbata Zavabi. <coughs> Both families are outgoing and welcoming, so the connection was instant. Little did we know that this would be the start of God's perfectly planned path. Through that relationship with the local family, our team was introduced to a group of Sokolava musicians called Group Chinifitika. By day, these, talented, these five talented young men earn a living by fishing or guiding tourists through the local reservation. They were once known as the bad boys of the village, um, and others urged us to steer clear of them. But that was not an option for our team. We knew that there was something special about this group of guys. My team and I started memorizing scripture in the local dialect that had been translated by our team leader, Rosina who was originally from Nusi Bay. Um, Rosina Ferdinand is her name, and she was my team leader. She is a local to Nusi Bay, born and raised there. Um, and she is actually now the whole unit leader for all of Madagascar, um, which is probably now about 60 missionaries, not including kids. Um, she's in charge of all of those missionaries throughout Madagascar. So a local lady is now leading all of the foreign missionaries with AIN in Madagascar. Um, that is a huge blessing. Rosina has insight that none of us could ever, ever have. Um, so that is one thing that I, I would ask for you guys to pray for, is pray for my team leader, Rosina, as she steps into this new role. She's been in it for about a month, I think. Um, as a church, we support Rosina. Um, I don't know if that's, is that known? I don't know if that's known or been written anywhere, but as a, as a church, we now support Rosina. Um, and so, as a church, it's our job to now pray for Rosina and support her in that way. Um, okay. Um, before this, there were no scriptures, no resources, no songs written in the heart language of the Sokolava, which is the tribal dialect. <clears throat> Why would they want to be part of the church when the church seems so foreign? Soon after learning parts of Daniel chapter 3, my teammate Brian asked us for our thoughts about giving pieces of the scripture to the band. We didn't know what would come of it, if anything, but thought it was an idea worth pursuing. Brian and Rosina met with group Chinafitika and asked them to write a song based on the verses. My team leader gave them some background of the bits and pieces of the passage, but that was the only direction uh, given. We gave them free reign to create a song that was purely Sokolava in sound and purely scripture and word. Music is such an important part in the Malagasy culture, and really in the African culture. Um, so for them to want to take the scripture and put it to song, it has reached people all over Madagascar, from the northern tip all the way to the south. These guys have been played on the radio, on Malagasy television, um, and it all started with this. The band finished the song in one day. They, we gathered together to listen to the band perform. There is no other God who can rescue like this God. They sang and with tears in my eyes, I knew that this was the start of God revealing himself to this little island. My team decided to make translation a priority after that. Another team member, Jed, helped Rosina form a committee of locals to translate scripture. Um, when we formed that committee, at that point, Rosina, my team leader, sp speaks uh, like six languages. Um, and then there is a local pastor who speaks English. Um, and then a guy who... He's a carpenter, but he also works for the church um, who speaks a little bit of English as well. And so that was kind of the committee that was formed 
um, to translate English scripture into Sakawaba. Um, and just a quick update on that. We have printed um, a first, the first three chapters of John, the entire book of Matthew. Genesis is translated. Um, I think Ephesians might be translated. And a couple of other different books. Um, and it's now on audio. Uh, because it's not, Sokolov isn't, since it's not a written language, it's not read. Um, and so we made it a priority to not only write the scriptures, but to put it audio so people can listen to it on their phones. <clears throat> now we had more scriptures to give the band, and they wrote a song based on Isaiah 43 in just a few days. Um, eager to continue making music, they asked for more. This group of young men was singing the word of God, and they were absolutely loving it. I prayed that the scripture would not just be words from their mouths, but would also be written on their hearts. As the band continued to write songs and the committee continued to translate, we started having a stockpile of Christian resources in the local language. As a team, we decided it was time to pull these resources together and have a simple outreach event. Also, by the urging of my father, who told us we needed to jump off in it and start something. And we did. This became known as The Gathering. We started in two villages where our team members lived. Each month, we met once in each village, gathering under the shade of a mango tree and sitting on grass mats. Through scripture reading, songs, stories, and prayer, locals heard the gospel message in their own language. Eventually, we held the gatherings in five different villages, allowing hundreds of Sakalava to follow the biblical narrative from creation to fall, redemption to restoration. After hearing the truth of the gospel, four of our friends confessed, their, confessed the sin in their hearts and their need for Jesus. Alexi, Botazara, Angela, Blondine now follow the path less traveled for the Sakalava. They are our brother and sisters in Christ. On June 21st, 2015, the first Sakalava church service was held. The simplicity of the gatherings translated into a simple church that resonates with the Sakalava culture. We held our first meeting in the front yard of Alexi and Botazara's hut. Once again, we sat under the shade of a mango tree on the grass mats, but now we sang with our new brother and sisters. Many people from the village came to be a part of the service, and we are hopeful that the church will continue to grow. Even though the team finished in August of 2015, the work on Nusi Bay will continue. Rosina and a few local believers still labor onward. The gatherings in the church will come together every week. The translation work continues, and the local committee has started the process of printing the books of Matthew, which are now printed. People can hear audio files of the Word of God, and the band's songs have been playing on Madagascar radio for months. The ministry is not dependent on foreign missionaries, but on the Lord, and we are so grateful for that. The Sakalava are reaching the Sakalava. And an update on the band, who is Ladis, Matisse, Edme, Lino, and Fabio. They um, recently, all of the missionaries in Madagascar from AIM come together once a year for an annual unit retreat. And the band was asked to come, because everyone kind of, they don't speak English, but when they came to lead worship at the retreat, they went on YouTube and learned a few English songs to be able to play for the foreign missionaries. Um, but they also played all of their songs that they had been writing. Um, and at, I think in the middle of that week or towards the end of the week, the band got up and with tears in their eyes, they said, we're ready. And that was, we got an email about it from Rosina and I think I got maybe 10 of my friends from Madagascar from different parts of Madagascar who were at that retreat. 
f Facebook messaging me, telling me just what had happened that week. And um, we, knew, we knew that they were almost there when we were leaving. And through this article that I just read, we could see the Holy Spirit working in these guys from when we met them. Um, and so there was an email from one of my teammates to the main office in Georgia that says, some great news to share with you in the U.S. office. We were praying for the band specifically, um, and Rosina emailed today that the entire band, Ladis, Matisse, Edme, Lino, and Fabio, committed their lives to Christ this morning at the Madagascar Unit Retreat. Praise God for our five new brothers. Um, so that was huge, because these guys are, are already missionaries to their own tribe, to their own culture. They've been singing these songs, and you can walk around the village, and kids will just be singing them all the time. Not even the right tune, but they're singing the words. And all of their songs are straight from Scripture. Um, so these guys have Scripture. They have the entire creation story memorized. It's in song. It's an eight-minute-long song. But they have it all memorized, and in the right order. I'm not sure I could list it in the right order. Um, so these guys, the Lord is going to do great things through this group of guys. Um, I actually want to go ahead and see if anyone has questions um, after reading this article, because once I get off this article, we're going to go like a couple of different things. So if you have any questions about my time there, what I saw, anything like that, I want you to go ahead and ask. Or if I miss anything. The island is... <coughs> Nusi Bay. It's just, it's N-O-S-Y, so it looks like nosy, but it's Nusi, like a noose. And then uh, Bay, and it's just B-E, but it's pronounced like B-A-Y. So Nusi Bay, Madagascar. And it's about like 10 kilometers off the coast of Madagascar. It's pretty small. There, and there's even more than that that was done. They worked, they met a couple times a week uh, just to get this done. Um, it was funded by a church in Canada through Jed, my teammate. And so they made it a very much a priority to get as much done as we can. Because if you go through, was it Wycliffe? And New, does New Tribes do translation? That can be a 20-year process. And this isn't like a final copy by any means. There are still mistakes in it, and that's fine. Um, but this is what we have for now, and it is, everyone wants to hear it, because it's stories, and stories are a big deal in this culture. It's, um, it's how they get news. It's what everyone does all the time. Everyone just talks to each other. Everyone comes and just sits on the porch and talks, and that's all, that's all you got to do. And so having these stories in their hands um, is so important. Anybody else? Sorry? Um, Francois, who is an FJKM pastor, which is a denomination on Madagascar. It's the biggest denomination there. Um, he pastored just a small church on Nusi Bay. Um, and then Herdeni, who is the carpenter, he actually built all of our huts. Um, he helped translate, and then my team leader, Rosina. Um, and then they would go out. So what they would do is they would meet together, and they would translate. 
and then they would take it out into the village and read it and then have people respond back and tell them what they just read and to see if it would match up. And then they would go back and rewrite it and do it again and then write it again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. A lot of people are. They will come and sit on my deck, plop the book down. At that point, I think it was just like on computer paper. Um, and they would come down and they would sit there and we would read through it together. No, we didn't start any formal ministry until after a year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <coughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it was probably, I'd say we started translation probably a year and a half in. We did a few stories, probably like from the Jesus Storybook Bible. We did a few stories. Um, probably around the year mark, I would say, um, just because they were already in such a good story form that everyone enjoyed those. And so we started working with those, but then we kind of left that behind and started translating the Bible. Uh-oh. They're my family over there. I love them. That's a great question. Can everybody hear that? Okay, she asked how the locals felt about us leaving um, and if they felt abandoned by missionaries kind of like coming in and then leaving eventually. That's a great question because that, I feel like that does need to be addressed. Um, I say, I would say, um, this picture is actually from when we were leaving. Um, one of my favorite moments because I've never felt so loved um, by people outside of my family and friends than right there. Um, the woman in the uh, black right there with the fabric wrapped around her, She's dancing in celebration. Um, because, that, because we became part of their family, sending us off was, it was hard, but it wasn't, like a, it wasn't a negative thing. It was, we have loved spending this time with you, but now you're going. And the band wrote us a song. It's called Veluma, um, which means goodbye. But then the rest of it is goodbye, but not forever. Um, and I wish I could play that song, and I wish I could translate it quickly, but I can't. Um, <coughs> I would say that that is more of an issue, um, the abandonment, and I'm going to tread carefully here. Um, it has to do a lot with short-term missions. If there's not an established 
missionary where you're going, if you're just going in and then leaving a week later, I'd say that's kind of where the abandonment comes in. Um, I think as a church, the way we go to India, the way we're going to Madagascar, the way we go to Amazon, Guatemala, everywhere that we're going, we're going to where there's an established missionary or missions organization. And so there is that constant presence there somehow. Um, And the same thing with Rosina. They see Rosina as a part of us, and Rosina is still on that island. And they knew whenever we left that the McReynolds family was coming back. They don't know yet that I'm coming back. Um, I haven't, sorry, for the two weeks, not like forever, like the church trip. (laughs) I shouldn't. Um, They don't know that yet. Rosina is going to tell them that in just a couple of months. Um, But the only thing that I would say is, they're my family, and I'm their family, um, and we were able to form such deep relationships that um, the abandonment issue was not even, not even on the radar. Um, it was just like saying goodbye to my own family. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how that went. Um, I can stay in touch with Rosina. She sends uh, monthly updates to our team still, Um, and through her, I can communicate to anybody in the local village. Um, She will, like, pass notes along to Blondine for me. Uh, Blondine is a very special lady. Um, She had an impact on my family, on Sharon. Um, She is my Sokolova mom and my best friend there. Um, And we, she told me I can remember it very clearly. We were sitting on my deck. It was a special occasion, so I got takeout pizza from a very expensive place in the city. And we sat on my deck, and we talked about the Bible. We talked about a few scriptures, and we talked about Zacchaeus. And that led to a conversation about how she said that she was ready to follow the path of Jesus. And that's how they word it, is that it's a path of Jesus. Um, and we talked about it, and we cried together, and then we prayed together. Um, that by far is one of my absolute favorite nights. Um, so Blondine is one that I try and stay in touch with. Um, she was probably the saddest goodbye, for sure. Um, sort of. Um, I actually had Wi-Fi in my hut, which is not something you would think. Um, But it goes off of cell phone signal. So it's like getting a a stick from AT&T and plugging it into your computer, like setting your iPad up with AT&T. It's fairly expensive, but that's the way we were able to get Internet. (laughs) And then the locals can do that as well, but it's just, it's really expensive to do that. And so if you go to town... um, which the town is called Hellville, um, and it has all of, like, the nice restaurants, um, very, very touristy. <laughs> okay, I thought they were really nice. Apparently, I was wrong. They're nice. Um, they're great. You know, lizards kind of, like, run all over the floor, cats and dogs come in, but it's nicer than, you know, my hut. Um, but you can get, usually all of the restaurants on the island have Wi-Fi because it's so touristy, and that's where all the tourists will go to get on Facebook and everything like that. Um, it's kind of hit or miss, depending on the day. 
Um, she just asked if there was any places or people that I had to be kind of like cautious of or wary of. Um, there was. There's a, um, a village called Embataloka, and that's where one of my favorite restaurants is, Z Burger. Everyone knows it well over here. Um, it is very, very high in prostitution um, and that whole industry and whatever and everything that comes with it. Um, in general, Nusi Bay is very bad about sex trafficking. Um, and, but with that, I was safe the whole time. I never felt unsafe, minus the two times that I was robbed. Those were the only times that I felt unsafe. And even that wasn't that bad. Um, but the people there, you could go anywhere on the island, and the people there knew the first second that we spoke that we were the Vaza, the white people, the foreigners, that lived in Abatazavavi. And they say, oh, I know so-and-so in Abatazavavi. Do you know them? Yeah, I know them. They come to my house every day. Instant connection formed. Um, so I could go anywhere on the island and feel safe. Um, if you know, It's all about who you know over there. And everyone knows you, especially if you're a Vaza-speaking Sakalava. So never unsafe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it breaks down almost every barrier that you can, like when I spoke the language, it was like forming an instant connection. And learning the local language was so important to our team that we didn't start formal ministry until a year. So I lived my life in Madagascar for a year trying to learn this language. And we decided as an organization, we can start formal ministry at six months. But we decided that we, weren't, we didn't have a good enough grasp on the language yet, that we needed to wait until a year. And even then, we didn't talk about Jesus until, what, Christmas? Christmas of, anybody know what year that was? <laughs> yeah, 2014. And I had gotten there April 2013. Um, we talked about, we started with creation. And we talked about God's creation. And then by the time Christmas, and that started in the summer um, after my parents left. Because we jumped off in it. And so we started then and didn't talk about Jesus until Christmas. No, that's fine. just kind of opposing views. Yeah. Well, the, the ancestor worship is so ingrained into their culture that that's going to be a struggle with the new believers for a while. Um, I don't think that that makes them unbelievers. I think that they are very much God's children. They are welcomed into the, the family. Um, they are our brothers and sisters. But they're going to struggle with that just like we struggle with any sin over here. We may not focus on ancestor worship. We may focus on materialism or lying, cheating, everything, okay? But some people at the beginning were a little confused, I would say. Like, not even, not even the, the new believers. But the fact that they were confused was a sign to me that the Holy Spirit was working, and that was good news. Um, we had people come up and question saying, do I need to come over here to pray, or do I need to go 
to the witch doctor. Or what, what do we call them? I can't remember. Um, but I, I loved those opportunities. We had people who used to ask us if we wanted Trumba, which is the ancestors, the, what they believed to be ancestors, inhabiting their bodies. And we said, no, we, we don't need that. There's no room in our hearts for that. Um, and now one of those people, one of the ladies that asked us that, is now a believer. The, church, the first Sokolov church service was in her front yard. Um, but yeah, we've had, we've had a lot of people um, question, and like I said, it was a lot of the people who aren't necessarily believers yet. Um, and then also just, there's a lot of spiritual warfare over there. Um, that, and there's a lot of spiritual warfare in America that goes unrecognized. Um, and over there, you get the dramatics in your face spiritual warfare with the, the ancestor worship. I mean, I could go to bed tonight to the sound of drums beating a constant beat and chanting. That's not, that's not unheard of. That's very frequent, except for the months where supposedly the door is closed. I don't know what that's all about, but, you know, I think that they just want to break. Um, <laughs> it's the same thing with, like, the taboos about going to the rice field. I'm like, you just want a day off. But you just don't want to ask for it. Um, but over there and over here, I firmly believe that demon possession is alive and well. Um, and I believe that we don't give it enough attention. I don't believe that we pray against it. Um, and that's one of the things that I want to talk about. Um, I think next Wednesday I'm actually going to meet with a group of people, whoever wants to come at 6.30 or at uh, 5.30 here. We're going to start praying for the persecuted church and the unreached people groups. Um, and that is some of the stuff that we're going to pray against. Because these, the Sokolava, how I was talking about how they're bound, they're bound because they don't know anything different. Um, and they need locals and they need missionaries to come in and tell them the truth. Um, they think that it's the ancestors coming in to inhabit their bodies, but what they don't realize is that it is Satan t capitalizing on an opportunity. Um, it is, in fact, demon possession. It is not their ancestors. It is not their deceased kings. Um, it's Satan. Um, and those conversations with friends over there were very hard, not only because of the language, but because that is something that is so deeply, deeply ingrained into their culture from birth, from their grandparents, their great-grandparents, their great-great-grandparents. That's passed along. Um, just my team leader, her mother was a medium for one of the most well-known kings of Madagascar. Um, her mother passed away while we were there. She had come to know the Lord years, years ago. Um, but yeah, so there is a lot of transition that needs to happen in Madagascar and on Nusi Bay and in Batazavavi. Um, anyways, what was the question that I went off on? That? Please, yes. <laughs> years before. Um, so what was on Nusi Bay before we got there? Okay. Um, there are a couple of local denominations, FJKM, Rima, uh, Seventh-day Adventist, uh, there's another one that I'm missing, the Catholic Church. Um, what else? There's a couple of other ones. But the problem with 
the local church, especially where we work, is that it's all about numbers. It's who you can get in the door. It's all about status. Um, which pastor is bringing in the most? Who's getting the most in the offering plate? Um, <clears throat> and so a lot of times they would say, yes, bring in your animistic beliefs. We'll hold a ancestor worshiping service in our church. Um, they were not preaching the truth. And they were leading those people astray. And so these, the Sokolava had a very skewed idea of what Christianity was and what following the Lord looks like. Um, a lot of them believe in a very distant God. Um, and one of my teammates wrote a paper while we were there about uh, how their view is of a distant God, ancestors, and then ancestors blessing the people, as opposed to what we believe. And so we, ha we kind of, we tried, we tried to use that to our advantage. We were saying, no, the ancestors aren't it. It's Jesus. Jesus is it. You're not asking for blessings from your ancestors. This is, what, this is who you are going to be asking blessings from. This is Jesus, Son of God. Um, and so we were able to use their animistic beliefs into a way into talking about the gospel. Um, but other than that, especially, I can only really speak for New Sea Bay as far as the churches go. Um, I only visited a few, visited a few on mainland Madagascar. Um, but as far as our churches go on New Sea Bay, it was all about status and all about numbers. Up and down. <laughs> um, there were a lot of times where I felt very alone and felt like, what the heck am I doing here? Um, probably more often than not. But I've never wrestled with God, struggled more in my life than when I was in Madagascar. I left thinking I had it all together, got to Madagascar, and just lost it just did not know what I was doing. Um, I had to spend quite a lot of time just on my face, weeping, because I didn't know what I was doing. It taught me relying on the Lord um, is what is going to get me to the end of this two and a half years. Um, there was no way, honestly, people who go into the Peace Corps, corps what is it? I'm not sure, who aren't believers, I don't know how you do it because I couldn't have lasted there two and a half years without the Lord. Um, my faith was stretched. My worldview has changed. Um, the way that I go about my walk has changed with the Lord. Um, it's very, I don't know how to put it. It's very much like sitting under a mango tree in the shade on a mat with the Lord. That's how I, when I picture my walk with the Lord, that's what comes to mind now. Um, just walking with the Lord. And I can thank the Sokolava people for that, that my laid-back view of, of life now is an islander lifestyle and just slowly walking my way <laughs> through here. Um, I remember when I first got back, I felt like I was walking slower than everybody. Like, I had grandmas passing me. Like, you know, everything is just a slower pace of life. Um, I feel like when I'm here in America, and I'm guilty of this now, um, I get so caught up in 
what I need to get done today. What do I need to do? I'm going to schedule my quiet time for 10 o'clock. It never gets done. Um, we definitely had our fair share of struggles as a team. Um, most of our conflict stemmed from, unfortunately, different theology, um, different ways of going about missions, uh, but I love my team. Not only are the Sokolava my family, my team is my family, and we saw our fair share of the ups and downs. We've had team members leave. Um, we had team members leave because they had a baby, but by the end, we fought like family and we loved like family. Um, and I could go to my teammates when I was struggling. Um, Rebe McReynolds, who is one of the Texas families, she was the one who encouraged me, who walked me through any of the struggles that I was going through, would talk with me, pray with me. Um, but living, living in Madagascar challenged my walk with the Lord for the better. All of those valleys that I went through made me a stronger person today. Um, I battled with sickness. I battled with just dealing with the fact that it was raining constantly for three months with no electricity and mold growing on my walls. Um, so like I would say slight depression. I was never really depressed, but just being somewhere where it's just completely dark for three months will really get to you. Um, Um, I would say that when I left, I kind of had almost the same belief as the Sokolava that sometimes God just seems so distant. Um, and when I lived in Madagascar, it was so real that I could feel it. I could feel the Lord there with me. Mm-hmm. That is a good question, and with that, I'm going to talk about coming home and what that means, and it touches on that. Let me get to it. Oh, wait, is that up there? I don't want that up there. Okay. It's just in my notes. I don't want to bring that up. Okay. <coughs> okay. My gosh. Okay, so touching on that, this is what it means for me to come home. I can't speak on behalf of all missionaries, nor do I want to, because everyone's experience coming home is very different. Um, so this is kind of written as a journal entry. Um, so I'm just going to read through it. <clears throat> what does it mean for me to come home? My preparation for coming back to Texas started a few months ago, or started a few months before I actually left Madagascar. I had, I had to start thinking about what it was going to be like to be back in the world of convenience. I mean, life has to be easier when you move home from a, move from a little hut in the jungle to America, right? Electricity, a car that doesn't break down every time you get in, air conditioning, a house without holes, rats, or snakes, maybe something not made of sticks. Life has to be easier, right? I can live without electricity. I can walk, and with a little Sokolava ingenuity, any car can be fixed. The breeze coming off the Mozambique Channel while sitting on my deck was my air conditioning. 
My hut with holes, rats, and snakes was also a place where my friends and neighbors came to sit every day to talk and to be present with me. It was my home, and sometimes it still feels like my home. Coming back to this home in Texas was not as easy as you might think. Yes, there is culture shock and a time of transitioning, which is still happening, but my biggest concern was, am I going to relate? And with that, do I have friends to come home to that will grasp that this life in Madagascar is ingrained in my very soul? What is it going to look like to be with my family again? Am I going to have people who can mourn with me, pray with me, understand me? Welcome to what has been on my mind and, my, and in my heart for several months. However, I do, have, I do a wonderful job of shoving all of this into a very small box and refusing to deal with it. I don't want people to know that I'm struggling. Who does? Leaving home wasn't easy. Coming home was even harder. I'm still peeling back the layers, still trying to understand who I am, and still wrestling through transition. One thing I know is that the Lord is good. Such a simple sentence that we so easily forget. He isn't repulsed by the sadness that plagues my heart. He is allowing me to grieve, and slowly he is opening that little box of everything I refuse to deal with. So I would say my faith right now is not shaky, but I'm in a state of wrestling with the Lord through all, through all of this, through all of the transition, all of the culture shock, all of the, am I going to relate? Um, so that's where my faith is. Part of it. He asked if it was a matter of trust, and part of it is. Um, one of the conversations that I had in Madagascar with a short-termer before I came back was how worried I was that I wasn't going to have a sense of community who could really understand me um, outside of my family. Um, and the short-termer said, do you trust that the Lord can provide that? And my answer was, I don't know. Um, so yeah, I'd say part of it is a matter of trust. That was a heavy note. <laughs> I did. I experienced a lot. And, you know, this talk tonight, I would say, is probably the first time that, well, starting this talk, um, like preparing for it, was probably the first time that I've really sat down to process. And you can ask my parents. I practiced. Go ahead. Absolutely. There were times when I was preparing to come home that I was very fearful. So a lot of that is trust and fear. And worry, and I could probably go on and on. Um, yeah, he said, um, I've talked to my family a little bit. I've, I'm not even sure how we got on that subject one night, but I said my view of death is very different from when I left to now when I'm home. Um, and it's because I saw a lot of death over there. So he's asking me to talk about a little bit of the death that I saw. Um, 
<coughs> I had never seen a real dead body until I moved to Madagascar. I'm, I'm talking like there's no embalming fluid. I've been to funerals, I've been to open caskets, and you know, we, people still kind of look alive. In Madagascar, there's none of that, and funerals can last five days. Um, and it is Malagasy culture, it is Sokolava culture, to go to the, the house to see the body on the third day. Um, tropical climate, no electricity to do AC, nothing to preserve the body. Um, I went to maybe 15 funerals while I was there. Um, and that is children, young kids, or young adults, and very old. Um, there was a very, very prominent person who passed away in the village while we were there. And there were probably seven, 800 people. And um, what you do is you go to the house, uh, you pay your respects, and there has to be a divorce ceremony if that person is still married. And so the women will, I might get this backwards, but the women will cut a rope and the men will dump water over their head. Um, and when that happens, the, some of the friends of the family or the family, <coughs> other than the, the widow, will go and bury the body. And the, that's the last time that they will see the, the body. They don't go to the burial. Um, and what you do is you carry the body, and usually it's a pretty far distance. That funeral, I think we probably walked about two and a half miles, and then up a couple of really big hills. They're not mountains, but they're not hills. I don't know what to call them. Um, but up to, like, the royal gravesite. Um, that was the last funeral that I went to, and that was probably the most emotional one. But a lot of times, people, that would be a great segue for us to talk to people. Um, when death was there, when people were sick. And so we used funerals and death and sadness um, to be able to talk about Jesus and hope. Um, so the question was about, did I ever feel overwhelmed when I first got there about their, their lack of or yeah, their needs um, and the poverty. Yeah. Um, I was a little more prepared for it just because of going to Uganda. Um, Madagascar is the 11th poorest country in the world. Um, but I don't know. I don't think I was ever overwhelmed by that. Um, yeah, like I don't, I don't really know how to explain it. Yeah, it was, just, it was life. You know, they grew the rice, they picked the rice, they ate that. They stored it up for a year. They grew vegetables. Um, fruit trees everywhere. Like, anything that you can imagine was there. And it's like real fruit. It's not, you know, yeah. Yeah, stuff you can. A lot of times there's, there's just food right around you. Um, but there's still mountain malnutrition, malaria, um, worms, any sickness just runs rampant there. And a lot of that has to do with the climate, um, just tropical climate. But that also brings a lot of food. <laughs> Was I overwhelmed with the materialism back now coming home? 
Um, I was overwhelmed with just the, the amount of stuff. Um, I didn't at all think like, oh, now that I'm back in America, I'm just going to live like I did in Madagascar. That's unrealistic for me to, to do. I live in America now, so I, I'm going to live here. Um, but, well, this happened actually when I was home for Jessica's wedding um, in April, a couple Aprils ago. Um, <laughs> I was on the, I was at Target because I refused to go to Walmart because I was only home for two weeks and I was like, I can't do it. So I went to Target and I went to the deodorant aisle and I had a meltdown. <laughs> Did not, I could not pick out deodorant. There's too many options. There's like all of this advertising, all this stuff. The grocery store that I went to in Madagascar was either called Bazaar Bay, which is just an open market with like rotting fish on one side and like fresh-ish fruit on the other. Um, and then the actual grocery store I think has three aisles and then a kind of frozen section. Um, and so to an extent, yes, I, I do get overwhelmed here. I still get overwhelmed. Um, sometimes it feels like I just have a short fuse. Um, and a lot of that has to do with transitioning back home. Um, Dad asked how many deodorant choices did I have there. Um, I had people send me deodorant because <laughs> the, the stuff over there just didn't cut it. <laughs> They, well, when they looked at us, they saw money. Um, any foreigner coming into a third world country is just, it's just going to be assumed that you are wealthy. Um, and I assured them that I am not wealthy. Um, but they refused to believe me. So for the longest time that they, even my friends would just like, when I would come back from town, they would ask me how much I paid for stuff, which my sister still does this in America, so I should be used to it. But, um, when they think Western, they just are going to think money. And so they always compare themselves. They're like, well, you have this. And this was very, very, like, at the, at the beginning, this was, like, all of our conversations was about money. And I was getting so tired of it um, just because we were, we were ready for them to see us as people, not money. Um, and that, that took a very long time, even with our close friends who are considered our close friends now. Um, finally, we got to the stage where we could just trade things. Um, a lot of times people will come to my house and they'd say, Tori, do you have a tomato? And I'd say, yeah. And tomorrow, or the next day, I would go and uh, I would say, hey, do you have a lime? Because, you know, I don't have any limes. And they're like, oh, yeah, here. And they stopped thinking about it because at the beginning they would have charged me for that. They would have said, give me some money and I'll give you an egg. Um, but by the end of it, it had completely changed. They, I've never heard them use the word poor. Um, there is a word for it. <coughs> There is a word for it in their language, but it's a very, very like negative derogatory term. Um, and I think the only time, actually I, I have heard it once, but it was only used as like a complete insult to somebody. Um, but they don't really, I mean, people deal with money over there, like they make transactions, but a lot of times it's services. Like one day, uh, Botazara, one of the women, had a day of harvesting rice. And so everyone from the village came and harvested rice. And what she did at the end was give everybody a little bit of rice that they harvested. Um, and so I don't think that they necessarily see themselves as poor either. I think they do when they start to compare themselves to the Western world.
Um, I would say, oh, that's a hard one. Yes, what stories were most impactful? What one or two stories? Um, creation, for one, I think, was because that was the first story that we told. Um, and because where we were, Madagascar is just beautiful, um, especially Nusi Bay. Um, and so we were able to just point out things uh, from that story. And then also I would say when we talked about the birth of Christ. Um, I have a picture from that night. Um, oops, that's peekaboo born. Okay, let's see if I can get this to come up. It's like, I think it's frozen up there. Maybe not. That could be it. Hold on. Yeah, I'm on the right one. Let me, I'll turn Apple Play off and on. Let's see. Mm, that didn't do it. Oh, wait, there we go. We're good. Oh, you can all see my phone. Okay. Um, so on Christmas, I'm going to have to zoom in on this because, okay. If you can't tell what that is, um, that is a candlelight service <coughs> on Christmas, um, or around Christmas. Um, but just to give you an idea of when that was, we, that was the first time we talked about Jesus, and we talked about the birth of Christ. Um, and the band had written a song. Um, they actually, we gave them the song, or the words to, what is it in English? Which one is it? Um, the stars are brightly shining. Oh, holy night. Um, <laughs> oh, holy night. And when we started singing that song, we wanted to light candles because, well, one, because it was dark and there's no lights, so we needed to be able to see. And number two, just for the fact that Rosina had given a message about the light of the world. Um, and so at this, this was the largest gathering we had ever had because people, it, it was attractive. Um, people loved the songs, people loved the stories. Um, and that was the first time that they heard about Jesus other than just like kind of informal conversations um, with our friends. This was the first time that in their language, Jesus, the true son of God, was talked about um, in story form through the scriptures through songs, um, and having 300 people with 300 candles dancing around to a way more upbeat version of O Holy Night, probably my favorite version of O Holy Night, is one of my favorite memories as well. Um, there's a video of it somewhere on Facebook, uh, and I could watch it over and over again. Those are probably the, the two, the birth of Christ and... Um, creation story. Mm trying to remember that. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was probably, probably two years ago. Um, 
Mm-hmm. We did. We did. That is what we did. Okay, so like when we did the creation story, we stopped right before we got to that part and left that for the next part. We left it with kind of like a cliffhanger because we wanted people to come back. Um, and so let's, let's talk a lot of the movie. Um, so we went into that. We, we sent people home with a challenge question is what we called it, um, where we said, if, if God made this so perfect, why do we have to, why do we have to work so hard now um, to, to get this fruit, to grow rice, this what happened um and like we came back and a lot of times we'd have people stand up and answer it took a long time it took a lot of like kind of prodding but um we wanted people to talk because that's how it, everything is learned over there it's by conversation um and so whenever we went into the fall we talked about that and i'm pretty sure we actually used some f- fruit trees as examples um but people really got it because of their surroundings um and so just being able to use our surroundings as part of the story was a huge benefit to us. Yeah, because it said like like every culture has like a flood story, right? Um, actually, I think we talked about that as a team and we couldn't find one in Sakalaba. Um <coughs> But maybe in Madagascar in general, there is a flood story. We... I'm trying to think. Um, (laughs) We asked, and they were just like, huh, we've never thought about it. (laughs) And we're like, okay, that's good. (laughs) We'll go from there. Um, But what we did is we also took, sometimes we went like, we did creation, fall, redemption, restoration, but we also did some teachings of the parables. Um, Why is that doing that? Sorry, guys. Okay. Um, We did, like, during, well, I'll just give you examples. Okay, so, like, we took took parables that were related to their life, which a lot of the parables were. Um, And so we would go through parables, even if it wasn't at a gathering, it was with a friend. And just to work on language, we would use language learning as an excuse to go through a Bible story. Um, And... So what we did is we just took stories from the Bible that we thought would most relate to the culture, um, which is surprisingly a lot. Um, and so that's kind of how we based which stories we were going to tell. Because they really had no, like I said, they didn't really know, they didn't really have a thought about creation. Um, and so when we kind of told a story about it, then they were like, huh, you know what, that, that might make some sense. Somebody... Um, oh, I, I slaughtered chickens. Um, that was a thing. But it's the freshest, freshest meat you can get. Um, I ate a lot of uh, fish, just because it was just, <laughs> you live on an island, might as well eat fish. Uh, I ate a lot of rice, a lot of beans. One of my favorite things, when I moved from the jungle village, because I lived in two different villages, I lived in a jungle village and a fishing village. And when I moved to the fishing village, I ate at this little restaurant um, every day for lunch, I got to take, I don't think my parents got to go there. Um, let's see. Yeah, this, no, this isn't, this is, this is a 
$1.50 meal right here. This is a bowl of beans and a plate of rice that no foreigner could finish except for maybe me and my team. Um, and then you would buy a big bottle of soda and you just sit on the table and you just share a meal. Um, you would eat out of community bowls if you were at a funeral or uh, just a get together, <laughs> what to call it. Sometimes we just had like people, we had like our whole village over to our house and we would just cook all together and just spend time together. And we'd eat out of these massive bowls and just share spoons. So like I said, I was sick all the time. <laughs> Can't imagine why. Um, and so we ate, I ate a lot of local food just because it was cheap and inexpensive and really good. Blondine, my friend and mom over there, best cook ever. All of these, <laughs> they're all nodding their heads because they got to eat her food. Um, and a lot of fresh food, fruit. Um, well, sometimes, sometimes I just ate cucumbers because <laughs> I didn't want to cook. Um, and sometimes I would cook over an open flame. Uh, it was charcoal, which was just made out of uh, charred wood, I guess, um, that they make out in the forest, which is actually have, has been really bad for Madagascar. That is one of the worst things that you can do um, for the land. And so right now, the government is trying to set up a, a several laws, trying to get that, trying to find a new way to make charcoal. Um, but that's what they know, and they're just going to continue to do it until they're out of resources. Um, and slash and burn is a big thing over there to plant rice. So, yeah, so I ate local chicken, rice, lots and lots of rice. Um, they do hunt. There's this, like, weird little animal that kind of looks like a mongoose and a raccoon, and it steals chickens. And so they go and they hunt it. The, the boys in the village will go hunt it with a slingshot. They've killed multiple ones, and I'm very, very impressed because they're very fast. Um, and they killed it with a slingshot. So that, and birds. I ate um, a little tiny bird once. It was, like, the most pointless thing I've ever eaten. But, <laughs> I mean... It was good, but it was really pretty, and I felt kind of bad for eating it, but they brought it to me, and they're like, well, look what we got for you. And I was like, go get the frying pan. <laughs> so that was about the only wild game, and other than, like, fish. I actually didn't get to eat that. Um, this is a picture of a giant stingray, which I did eat, um, and it's very good. And we've all traveled in a boat like that. This, real quick, this is a boat uh, filled with too many people for what the boat is supposed to hold. Um, there's probably actually 30 people on this boat, and it's for 15 people. Um, this is on another boat that has too many people on it, and I'm given the A-OK -okay sign because I'm on a boat with a bunch of short-termers who are like, what did we get into? Um, this is our church. Well, pretty much like our church over there. Um, this is in a different uh, village, but there you go. There's our, our chairs. Um, lots of grass mats. That's another gathering. That's the Christmas. That's Ladis, the leader of the band. That's the whole band. And that's what a typical car looks like. Yeah. I don't know if you can see this, but this is my favorite taxi driver, Musa. And he is having to cut a root out of the ground because his little car, if you want to call it that, won't go over it. Um, 
And this is kind of just like what it looks like to walk through the, the jungle to get to different villages. Um, this is when Sharon and Jessica and everybody came, um, and Russell, and that is not supposed to open. But those are some pictures. We are out of time, but I can answer one more question. Follow the path. Yeah, in Sakalava, it sounds really cool. It's Lalanga Jesus. So it's literally the, the road of Jesus is what it translates to, or the path. Um, which is, th we actually have a song that's called Lalanga Jesus. And um, it's also, it's new. Oh, I can sing it right now with my lovely singing voice. Or not, because we're out of time. <laughs> um, but as I wrap up, I just want to thank you guys for coming. Uh, thank you guys for praying for me over the last two and a half years. I would ask that you would continue to pray for me. Um, as I just shared kind of the struggles of coming home, um, I would ask that you pray for Rosina um, as her new role in AIM. Um, oh, and what's next? I'm going to school in Washington to finish at Moody Bible Institute. I decided to transfer over there instead of going back to Chicago. Um, and after that, anyone's guess. Um, I'll let you know. Uh, also, the Madagascar trip, I'm still keeping it open because I'm waiting to hear from a couple of people. If you're interested, July 8th through the 17th, come talk to me. Um, I would love for more people to join the team. Uh, next Wednesday, 5.30, praying for the unreached, for the persecuted church. Um, and yeah, thank you guys so much for your prayers, your financial support, uh, for coming in and listening to me tonight on all of the rabbit trails I went on and everything. Um, and if anyone ever wants to know more or ask more questions, I love Standpipe Coffee. Um, and I would love to go grab coffee with people. <laughs>